lines in the, one of the songs we sang today said, Jesus conquered the grave. Pretty amazing statement, and he did indeed do that. And he who conquered the grave can certainly conquer any problem or thing that we face in our life. We really do have a great and a wonderful God. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, and verse 30, uh, 46 uh, through 49. When Jesus is speaking here, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth. Would you pray with me, please? Father, once again, we come here today and thank you for your grace and your goodness to each and every one of us. We thank you, Father, that um, you have created all that there is and that you sustain it by your powerful word. That you rule this world and, Lord, that you offer redemption to mankind. You call men and women and children to yourself. And having redeemed them, you continue the work you've begun in them, making them more like your son, Jesus. And Lord, you have promised us the good that is to come when we are in your presence forever and ever. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that dwells inside of us, that uh, enables us to live this life you've called us to. And we thank you especially for your word, Lord. We thank you for um, this treasure that you have given to us that reveals to us things we wouldn't otherwise know. And we ask, Lord, that as we approach your word today, that you would open our minds and our hearts to that word. And I pray, Father, that as we hear you speak, that we would embrace what you say, and that we would endeavor to put it into practice in our lives. And Lord, it is my prayer that you would allow me to disappear behind the cross of Jesus Christ, that he and he alone would be exalted in our midst today. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray. So uh, Deacon was briefed uh, beforehand on what his role uh, would be at an upcoming missionary banquet, and uh, he was told to be sensitive to the fact that there would be guests from foreign countries who are not accustomed to American culture. And during the banquet, that Deacon found himself seated next to a dark-skinned man in tribal attire who was hungrily devouring a portion of chicken and trying to think of some way to communicate with the man, the deacon leaned over and said, 
chomp, chomp, good, huh? And uh, the man uh, looked at him a little uncertainly, and he replied, mm, good. And a little later, the man saw the deacon noticed the man was enjoying a cup of coffee, and he leaned over and commented, glug, glug, good, huh? And again, the man looked at him and replied, mm, good. Now, to the deacon's dismay, when the speaker for the evening was announced, it happened to be the man who was sitting next to him, and he got up and he spoke and gave a message in a perfect Oxford-accented English. And upon concluding, he headed back towards the deacon, whose face was a bit red, and the speaker simply said, blab, blab, good, huh? Now, that's funny. The first time I ever heard that, I laughed, and I laugh every time I've heard it since. <laughs> and whether it's true or not, it's humorous, and it points out the kinds of mistakes that are easy to make when dealing with people of other cultures or races or nations. And, of course, those mistakes can be more serious. Even when we were in Guatemala and I was speaking uh, uh, one night after the VBS, I said something that really wouldn't have gone over in that culture, and Yolanda had to kind of correct the translation and uh, so that I wouldn't offend anybody there. And those things can happen, and they do happen, and, and yet... Historically, the church really has always involved, been involved with people of other cultures and races and nations. Uh, down through the centuries, uh, we haven't been content uh, to be the only Christians there are. There's always been a desire to see other people become Christians, uh, to see others come to the faith uh, in our own culture, in our own homes, our own towns, but also all across the world. And that's what's behind missions, uh, the desire to see others come to be disciples of Christ. And it, it causes individuals and groups and churches and denominations uh, to send representative to, representatives to other peoples in order to spread the faith. And the one who goes is the missionary, and that whole process is called missions. And if you were to ask where the idea of missions come from, the answer is simple and it's straight. Forward, it comes from the heart of God. Christians care about missions because Jesus cares about missions. And God cares so much that he commands us to be involved in that process of spreading our faith to other people. And one of the primary places uh, that we learn about missions is in the passage that we looked at last week, the Great Commission, and I'm going to ask you to join me there once again in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And you can see that, of course, on the slides on the other side of me, but uh, I encourage you to bring your Bible uh, so you can look in your own uh, text and maybe even make notes if you need to. So what I want to do right now is just begin by reading the passage. Uh, verse 18, it says this, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And now that commission uh, passage is known as the Great Commission. And one of the things that's obvious from this text, and really it's the central 
command to us here is that we need to make disciples for Jesus, which really raises a question, how do you do that? I mean, how do you make disciples for Jesus? So the main verb in this is this commandment that's found in verses 19 and 20, and it's to make the disciples, and all of the other uh, verbs add information to the process, the going and the baptizing and the teaching are all the kind of nuts and bolts of the process. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the actual process of making the disciples. Uh, but this rest of the passage tells us who already believe the greater context of this whole process of bringing people to Christ. So what we're going to do is look at this passage, and we're going to assume for now uh, that we have someone who has already believed the good news about Jesus and who wants to be his disciple. So just what would we do with that imaginary person? Where would we begin? Well, verse 19 tells us the first step that we take when a person has put their faith in Christ. And what we are to do is we're to baptize them and we're to do it in a certain way. And so we read there in verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So in order to make a person a disciple of Jesus, we're to see that he or she is baptized into the name of the Trinity. So baptism really is uh, means... Uh, publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. In in that act of baptism, a person is saying to all the world that he or she claims Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So this baptized person has publicly identified with Jesus Christ. Now, of course, when you do that, you're identifying with other things, too. You're identifying with God's people. You're identifying with the church. You're identifying with God's work in the world. But but the main thing that you're doing is you're publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And, and, and that act of baptism really is, it's like putting on a uniform, say, Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or, or the Marine Corps. So you put on a uniform of one of those organizations, and, and, and you're saying to everybody that you belong to that organization whose uniform you're wearing. And baptism is like this. Or, or you might might compare baptism to a wedding. See, if you were to ask uh, someone what marriage uh, is, you, you might tell someone or they might answer to you, it's really a love relationship between a man and a woman. Well, Christianity is like that. It's a love relationship between Jesus Christ and the believer. But marriages also have a wedding ceremony. It, it has the relational side of love, but it also has a ceremonial side that makes it public and responsible, proclaiming to everyone that these two people are committed to each other. And baptism is like that. It's like the ceremonial side of the love relationship between the believer and his Lord. It, it makes it public and responsible. It's a proclamation to everyone that these two are committed to one another. The believer is committed to Jesus, but Jesus is also committed to the believer. Now, some people I know, we've met them, 
and say they don't really have to be baptized to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to know I don't think that's quite right. Um, See, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. And such people are quick to point out the thief on the cross who wasn't baptized. But the truth is, is unless you're on a cross when you come to faith, why would you not follow Jesus in baptism? See, a relationship would indicate that you would do that. See, it's like a man uh, or a woman who think that they don't need to get married because their love is everything. If it really were, wouldn't they want to make that uh, commitment public and permanent in the sight of God and the people? See, baptism is like that. It's this one-time statement of this permanent public commitment that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Besides all that, Jesus commands that his disciples that should, shouldn't it end the discussion for us? Now, I have to tell you, I know some people struggle with this, and I, and I can understand it, and I can accept their dilemma as they think through that thing. But that's a whole different thing than simply not doing it. And I also know that there are times when some people feel that it's advisable to wait a while before baptizing someone, such as a child, and I can understand that also. But under normal circumstances, baptism follows belief. And we also said, remember, that we are to baptize them in a certain way. And I'm not talking here so much about immersion, although that's how we practice it at Y Bible Church. That's what we believe is the right way to do it. Uh, I'm talking about here about what it says in the rest of the text. You see, we baptize them in the name of the Trinity. Again, verse 19 says, baptizing them in the name of of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, that you can see that and understand that in the English, but the Greek is so much more clear. And what we have here is this singular word, name, but that name consists of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that formula, that Trinitarian formula, is represented in the very formula of baptism. And, and, and when you talk to people about Jesus, it always comes up. We always talk to them about the fact that he is God. And so that public identification with Jesus uh, means that we identify with that person who is part of the Godhead. We refer to him as a second person of the Trinity. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is the great I Am. He is referred to in the Old Testament as Holy, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's referred to in the New Testament as the God, as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being as being in very nature God. He's the Word of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is a one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. That is the Jesus in which baptism symbolizes that we identify with. And God is one God, but there are three persons in the Godhead, Jesus being the second. And that's the Trinity. 
and in our baptism, we are proclaiming that very thing. I know that's a difficult concept. And, and the, the one I like best to illustrate it, and I've used it here before, is to simply talk about a person like myself, you know. Here I am, I'm standing up here, and, and I have this body, and this is me. You know, as bad as it might be, it's me. But we all can conceive of that time of when we leave this body and when I go to be with the Lord and my body is put into the ground. And so that's me also. And, and then there is the spirit. And that's the part of us that's dead until we're born again. And that's the part that communicates with God. And so in that very uh, uh, picture of the human being, there's the picture of the Trinity. And I know that example's not perfect. Because no example is, because there's only one absolute and unique God, and there's no way for finite humans to completely understand that infinite God. But he points us in the right direction. And, and, and what we have here is that this baptism that, that all disciples need to undergo is in the one name of the Father and the Son Holy Spirit, who is one God. And right from the very beginning, there's this proclamation through baptism of just who Jesus Christ really is. He is God. He's the Son who became flesh. And this imaginary would-be disciple of Jesus that we're talking about must publicly identify with his Lord by being baptized in the name of the Trinity if he really wants to be Jesus' disciple. So that's the initiatory right, the, the one-time public identification with the Son of God that we do through baptism. And we identify with him all the rest of our life and the things we say and the way we live. And that baptism is a significant act in the life of the believer. And we need to understand that and we need to appreciate it. It's not, it's not an optional thing. It's what God expects of his people. But there's really more here in this text, of course, and that is after baptism, we then want to continue making this person into a disciple, and we do that by teaching him or her to obey Jesus. And so in verse 20 tells us more of what that means, and, and it says there, Jesus talking, you, you make disciples and you baptize them, and then you teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So making someone into a disciple of Jesus Christ means to baptize them in the name of the Trinity and to teach them to obey Jesus in everything. So discipleship, by definition, means being obedient to the master. Uh, he or she submits to the authority of the leader. So the disciple of Marx is a communist and disciple of Buddha, Buddha uh, adheres to his sayings, and the disciple of Christ obeys his teaching. And I don't know about you, but if I am going to be a follower of someone, I really want to follow someone I think is worth following. So if, for instance, I, I'm uh, lost in the wilderness, and if I'm given a choice, I'm not going to follow an accountant from Pittsburgh if there's a professional hunting guide there. I'm going to follow that hunting guide, and I'm going to do just what he tells me, because if I do that, I might have a chance of getting out of the woods alive. If, on the other hand, I were having tax problems, 
I'm not going to follow the hunting guide. I'm going to listen to the accountant. I'm going to do just what he says so that I don't get in trouble with the IRS. And when it comes to the issues of life and of eternal life, I'm going to follow the author of life, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do just what he tells me. That's what discipleship means. Now, some people, they make this claim that you can believe and not obey Jesus. I think that happens because there's this, this desire not to confuse works with this, uh, this act or this coming to Christ in salvation. And, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that, that salvation is absolutely a free gift and it comes to us uh, through faith and by grace. But when it comes, then, then it changes us on the inside. The Bible teaches that if you are a believer and you choose to disobey and continue in that disobedience, if you really belong to Christ, you're going to be chastised. You're going to pay a, a big price for that. It may not happen immediately, but it's going to happen. And if you have chosen to be disobedient and, and uh, you continue in it and never pay a price, the reason is is because you don't belong to Christ. So in that case, if you don't come to him, what's going to happen is one day he's going to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, it really is in the nature of the disciple to obey his master. Of course, none of us does that perfectly, but if we belong to Jesus, we ought to obey him. And We ought to obey him in everything. So again, verse 20 says, teaching them to obey uh, him in everything that he has commanded. So we're to be obedient in everything. So the reason for this, again, is that Jesus Christ is God. and, And that means we must obey him completely. This requirement for obedience uh, really is a proportional to the authority of that which we're obeying. So on a day-to-day basis, I'm driving my car, I have to obey the traffic signs. But there are times when I don't have to obey them. If a policeman is standing there directing traffic and he signals me to go on, I go on even if the light is red. I owe that policeman correspondingly more authority than the traffic signs because he has, I mean, more obedience because he has more authority. Now, if I were in the service and my commanding officer told me that our country was right now in a state of martial law, then I would have authority over that policeman and, uh, and my obedience would be to my commanding officer. And if uh, I were in a war situation, And that same commanding officer gave me an order to commit a crime against humanity, in which case I would then disobey him because I owe an obedience to an even higher authority, and that would be the military code. And were that code so holy that it forbid me to honor Jesus Christ, I would then continue to obey God and honor him because I owe obedience then to the highest authority which is God himself. Let's understand. There never is a time when it's right to disobey God. There's never a time when it's wrong to obey him. The only time...
assignment to ever profit to disobey any authority is either when that authority is clearly wrong or when there is a higher authority instructing you to do something else. But God is never wrong, and there never is a higher authority. So we always need to obey him. And so the disciples of Jesus are to obey him in everything. It really is the nature of a disciple to be obedient, and Jesus Christ, as God, demands complete obedience. So, so far, I think that's good so far. We have this imaginary person who's, who's already believed in Jesus and wants to become a disciple, and so we know we have to point them to getting baptized and identifying with the the Trinity, and we need to continue that process of making them into a disciple by teaching them to obey Jesus and everything that he commands them. And making someone into a Christian means that. But, but now I want to move, if we could, from this kind of realm of imagination and, and begin to be a little bit more practical. You see, we know what it means to make a disciple out of someone when someone believes in Jesus Christ. And and again, next week we're going to talk more about that process of actually making the disciples. But now the question we need to ask is, is where does this would-be disciple come from? How do we get disciples for the world? Well, to answer that, we first have to understand that the, the disciples of Jesus can, come, uh, can be anyone from anywhere. And again, verse 19 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. A disciple of Jesus can be anyone from anywhere. So this second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is the Lord of all the earth and all the peoples of the earth. He is God, and God made it all. And in his own words, Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. And we know that all mankind is lost and in need of the saving power of Jesus. Bible tells us that God is no respecter of persons and that all who call on him will be saved. The word tells us that God loves the whole world and so he sent his son to redeem any and all who would come to him. And so in the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples to be witnesses for him to the ends of the earth. Anyone, anywhere can be the disciple of Jesus and God has never been devoted exclusively to any one group of people. The Jews were his chosen people in the Old Testament, and they were chosen in order to bring blessing to the rest of the world. And today, God's chosen people is the church. But again, it's so that we can be uh, bring Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. The simple truth is, the disciple of Jesus can be anyone from anywhere. And having said that, responsibility for making disciples falls on those who already know Jesus Christ. So remember back in verse 19 when Jesus gives his commandment to go and make disciples, he's talking to those who already know him, who, who already belong to him. We who know Jesus already are the ones who tell others to come to him. So you think of it this way. Suppose that you were a politician and you were seeking election. There was a group of people that you really needed to vote for you. And 
And if that were true, you would try and go and see them yourself, right? But sometimes that's just not possible. So what you would do in that case is you'd send a representative. But, but you wouldn't send just anybody to represent you, would you? I mean, you, you wouldn't call up your opponent and ask him to send one of his or her aides to go and talk to these people on your behalf. Uh, you wouldn't even send a disinterested person because there's such a thing as damning the faint praise. Now, you would send someone who passionately, passionately believed that you were the right person for the job. And so it is here. Uh, uh, Jesus, as God, has chosen to work through people, and he sends people who are already passionately in a belief and a relationship with him to convince other people to do the same. And so he sends missionaries. And the truth is, we can't all go to the ends of the earth, and not everyone is called to be a missionary, but we are all called. We are all responsible to see that others also come to know the Lord by talking to others ourselves and by sending missionaries. And there really is no excuse for this. I mean, if we're disciples of Jesus, we must obey everything that he says. And he says, make disciples of anyone from anywhere. And it doesn't matter if we don't think that it can ever be completed. And it doesn't matter if the world around us tells us to value our own uh, other cultures and their beliefs and mind our own business. It doesn't matter that we don't feel convicted about missions or sharing good news. Jesus is simply commanding us. We have to do our part in seeing that that great commission is fulfilled. So as a church, what do we do? I mean, we, we support missions, and we support ministries that reach out to people, and, and we go on missions trips, and, and we reach out to our community in various ways, such as Sobwana and Little Lamb Preschool and BVS and another way. And all of that is good. But it's not all there is. As a church, no doubt we could do more. But the real question is more personal. And that is, what do we learn about ourselves from this passage? How do we stack up individually? You know, maybe, maybe we even felt a little uncomfortable when I said that God sends those who are already believing in him to convince others to do the same. Maybe that word passion isn't the best choice, and it certainly must uh, be explained somewhat, which will be next week. But let it stand for now, perhaps, just to look at ourselves. None of this that we've looked at this morning exists in a vacuum. It's not a mere theory. It's not just a fact that we ought to be able to write down on a piece of paper or a memory really a call to action. There, there is a going, even if it's just across the street and into the next room. There's this process of making disciples and of helping them to publicly identify with Jesus Christ and helping them to obey everything, which then brings us back to the very beginning because then they need to go out and make disciples too. 
And I have a test. I don't know how you stack up when you look at this passage. I can tell you that I know I'm not where I wish I was. You know, as a pastor, I talk to people all the time in, in settings like this uh, about the gospel and about Jesus. But if I'm not doing it in my personal life, then I'm not really doing all I need to do. And I don't know where you are. I know I know if I ask you, every one of you would say, I believe everything you said this morning. And if I said, are you doing it? You might hesitate. And you might wish I hadn't asked that question. But you know, the very first step to making a change is to know what things like. And if it isn't as it should be, then you have to admit you need to make a change. And then you take those first little steps of obedience. And when you do that, then God begins uh, showing you different ways in which you can fulfill that commitment. Maybe God should call you to help in GBS. Maybe he would encourage you to be part of what happens here on Wednesday night in Wyatt. Maybe he would invite you to go talk to your neighbor or your husband or your wife or your children or your mother or your father. There is some way that you can be part of this. You can support your church, but you can invite people to church. You can pray for missionaries, but you can talk to your neighbor. All of that is part of what you're supposed to do. The first thing is to know, or to be reminded, what the Word teaches. And then the next thing is to begin obeying it. Now the truth, after all, as Jesus said, will set even if it's the truth that you aren't quite yet what you ought to be, knowing that really is the beginning of freedom. When I was in seminary, going to school to be a pastor, we had an evangelist come in and speak one day in the chapel. And he said, I want everyone who has talked to someone about Jesus Christ in the last five years to raise their hands. And a lot of people did. A lot of people did. And then he said, I want everyone who has talked about Jesus to someone in the last year to raise their hand and an awful lot of the hands that were raised went down. And then he said, I'd like to see those who have talked to someone about Jesus Christ this last week to raise their hand. And in that large group of men who were called in their ministry, only one or two raised their hand. And that wasn't all.
understand the nuts and bolts of it. He believed it. And we're going to believe it in him. One step. One step. That's all it takes. A willingness to abide. And one small step. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you called us, Lord, out of darkness into your wonderful light. Thank you that you give us the privilege, Lord, not only of living your sharing it with others. Help us, Lord, to do a better job.